and welcome back to the Vintage Podcast with me, Lena Norms. Earlier this week, Ian McEwan joined BBC Martha Kearney on stage at London Southbank Centre to reflect on his life in writing and his latest novel, Machines Like Me. Machines Like Me is set in an alternative 1980s London. Britain has lost the Falklands War, Margaret Thatcher battles Tony Benn for power, and Alan Turing achieves a breakthrough in artificial intelligence. We are lucky enough on the Vintage Podcast today to have an exclusive recording of 10 minutes of the event, which opens with Ian reading a scene from the novel that introduces the synthetic human, Adam. Here is Ian at the Southbank Centre. It was religious yearning granted hope. It was the holy grail of science. Our ambitions ran high and low for a creation myth made real for a monstrous act of self-love. As soon as it was feasible, we had no choice but to follow our desires and hang the consequences. In loftiest terms, we aimed to escape our mortality, confront or even replace the Godhead with a perfect self. More practically, we intended to devise an improved, more modern version of ourselves and exult in the joy of invention, the thrill of mastery. In the autumn of the 20th century, it came about at last, the first step towards the fulfillment of an ancient dream, the beginning of the long lesson we would teach ourselves that however complicated we were, however faulty and difficult to describe in even our simplest actions and modes of being, we could be imitated and bettered. And I was there as a young man, an early and eager adopter in that chilly dawn. But artificial humans were a cliche long before they arrived, so that when they did, they seemed to some a disappointment. The imagination, fleeter than history, than technological advance, had already rehearsed this future in books, then films and TV dramas, as if human actors walking with a certain glazed look, phony head movements and some stiffness in the lower back could prepare us for our life with cousins from the future. I was among the optimists, blessed by unexpected funds following my mother's death and the sale of the family home, which turned out to be on a valuable development site. The first truly viable manufactured human with plausible intelligence and looks, believable motion and shifts of expression went on sale the week before the Falklands Task Force set off on its hopeless mission. Adam cost 86,000 pounds. I brought him home in a hired van to my unpleasant flat in North Clapham. I'd made a reckless decision, but I was encouraged by reports that Sir Alan Turing, war hero and presiding genius of the digital age, had taken delivery of the same model. He probably wanted to have his lab take it apart to examine its workings fully. Twelve of this first edition were called Adam, 13 were called Eve. Corny, everyone agreed, but commercial. Notions of biological race being scientifically discredited, the 25 were designed to cover a range of ethnicities. There were rumors, then complaints, that the Arab could not be told apart from the Jew. Random programming as well as life experience would grant to all complete latitude in sexual preference. By the end of the first week, all the eaves sold out. At a careless glance, I might have taken my Adam for a Turk or a Greek. He weighed 170 pounds, so I had to ask my upstairs neighbor, Miranda, to help 
me carry him from the street on the disposable stretcher that came with the purchase. While his batteries began to charge, I made his coffee, then scrolled through the 470-page online handbook. Its language was mostly clear and precise, but Adam was created across different agencies, and in places the instructions had the charm of a nonsense poem. Unreveal upside of B347K vest to gain carefree emoticon with motherboard output to attenuate mood swing penumbra. But at last, with cardboard and polystyrene wrapping strewn around his ankles, he sat naked at my tiny dining table, eyes closed, a black power line trailing from the entry point in his umbilicus to a 13 amp socket in the wall. It would take 16 hours to fire him up, then sessions of download updates and personal preferences. I wanted him now, and so did Miranda. Like eager young parents, we were avid for his first words. There was no loudspeaker cheaply buried in his chest. We knew from the excited publicity that he formed sounds with breath, tongue, teeth, and palate. Already, his lifelike skin was warm to the touch and as smooth as a child's. Miranda claimed to see his eyelashes flicker. I was certain she was seeing vibration from the tube station a hundred feet below us, but I said nothing. Now, Adam was not a sex toy. However, he was capable of sex and possessed functional mucous membranes in the maintenance of which he consumed half a litre of water each day. While he sat at the table, I observed that he was uncircumcised fairly well endowed with copious dark pubic hair. This highly advanced model of artificial human was likely to reflect the appetites of its young creators of code, the Adams and Eves, it was thought, would be lively. He was advertised as a companion, an intellectual sparring partner, friend and factotum who could wash dishes, make beds and think. Every moment of his existence, everything he heard and saw, he recorded and could retrieve. He couldn't drive as yet and was not allowed to swim or shower or go out in the rain without an umbrella or operate a chainsaw unsupervised. As for range, thanks to breakthroughs in electrical storage, he could run 17 kilometers in two hours without a charge or its energy equivalent, converse nonstop for 12 days. He had a working life of 20 years. He was compactly built, square-shouldered, dark-skinned, with thick black hair swept back, narrow in the face, with a hint of hooked nose, suggestive of fierce intelligence. Pensively hooded eyes, Miranda said he resembled a docker from the Bosphorus. Before us sat the ultimate plaything, the dream of ages, the triumph of humanism, or its angel of death. So how did you go about creating the Adam or putting yourself in the mind of the people who were going to create him, the people, the, the coders and so on? Well, my first task, I think, as a novelist was to set myself the goal of making sure that Adam would be a character, 
that he had to become an individual. And the second part of this was that his owner, Charlie, uh, would have to constantly hover between thinking he was playing a computer game, that he had a sort of very expensive toy uh, on the one hand, and on the other feeling that he was in the presence of a consciousness, a fully sentient being. And he was always full of doubt, and I wanted the reader to be in Charlie's shoes in relation to, to Adam, sometimes wondering, sometimes absolutely certain that this simply was a thing, and then sometimes certain that this thing absolutely had a consciousness. And then letting things roll in this way, uh, I came to the, the central issue as Yes, he's paid 86,000 pounds for it, but if it has a consciousness, can you own it? Can you own someone, uh, even if it's a thing, can you own a consciousness? Um, and the best way it seemed to test that out was to import one of the oldest plots, which would be a, a, a three-cornered love affair. Just as Charlie realizes that he's falling in love with his upstairs neighbor, um, uh, Adam goes and uh, has uh, a night of shame uh, with Miranda. And it seemed to me the most important thing about that is what kind of conversation would Adam and Miranda have the morning after? <laughs> Did Charlie deserve to feel himself to be a cuckold? Or was Miranda quite right to say, well, you know, if I'd gone to bed with a vibrator, you wouldn't have complained. Or you might have, but not quite so tragically. And that seemed to me, it's a sort of parallel of that conversation, what, what parents might have about whether they should tell their five-year-olds to address Siri politely or not. So the thing really hinged on whether I could persuade the reader of, and, and step into, empathize with Charlie's doubt and also whether I could make Adam into a, such a rounded character that by the end, the reader could be in no doubt that he was a fully sentient being. Thank you so much for listening to the Vintage Podcast. Have you read Machines Like Me yet? Uh, do tell us on Twitter or Instagram at Vintage Books. And thank you so much to London's Southback Centre for letting us share that very exciting clip with you. As always, Keep reading boldly and thinking differently and until next time. Bye.